0: to the Psych Central Podcast, where each episode features guest experts discussing psychology and mental health in everyday, plain language. Here's your host, Gabe Howard.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Psych Central Podcast. And today, I will be speaking with Krissa Hickey, who is the mom of a young man with schizophrenia and an incredible mental health advocate. I'm proud to say that I've worked with Krissa in real life, and she is doing incredible work. Krissa, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Gabe. How are you doing? I am doing
1: very well. You know, we're we're both mental health advocates, so that's just generic. We can get that right out of the way, and nobody knows what that means. Mm -hmm. But as longtime listeners know, I live with bipolar disorder, so I always do my speaking from the lived experience, what it's like to live with mental illness. And why I'm so drawn to you and why I like talking to you and learning from you is uh, your lived experience is... uh, and the majority of your advocacy is from the, you know, I hate to say caregiver, but from the family member, from the mom who is advocating for her son. Can you can you kind of give us that story? Sure. A lot like your
2: story, I'm sure. No one gets in it, wakes up one morning and goes, I want to be a mental health advocate. <laughs> for us it started when um, my son Tim, who twenty five in a week or so now Um, was four years old. We knew that there was something going on with him. We just weren't quite sure what it was. And we started going through with doctors and neurologists and neuropsychologists and therapists and everything else. Long story short, after several different diagnoses and all kinds of issues, he ended up in his first psychiatric inpatient stay at the age of 11 when he attempted suicide. And the doctors there said, well, what nobody wants to tell you is that your son has schizophrenia. And I said, no, he doesn't because kids don't have it. And I didn't believe it. And then six months later, he tried to kill himself again. And I went, okay, obviously we have a problem here. And so at that point, the advocacy was personal. It became, what do I need to do to make sure that my child is getting the best care possible? And I can try and give him a life, an adult life. Because at this point, you know, you worry about whether or not your kids can even make it to adulthood. So that kind of morphed into all kinds of things. You know, when you have a child, especially with a serious mental illness, it really does become a family disease. Um, everyone's affected. Parents are affected. Siblings are very affected. Everyone's affected. So when I started doing my advocacy work, and then I found other parents who were struggling with the same kind of things we were trying to figure out, I started sharing information and started my blog and getting people to help share their stories. And we basically built this I ended up building this community of parents who were all trying to help each other because not even our clinicians really could help us very well because it's pretty rare. I mean, there's about 100 children in the U.S. every year diagnosed with childhood outside schizophrenia, so we're a small fraternity.
1: That is very small. Even if we go with every single child who's diagnosed with mental illness, that number is is very small. It's bigger than the hundred, but it's still very small. Yeah, and of course. We've all heard it said a thousand times in the mental health community, mental illness is not a casserole disease. When people hear about stuff no. like this, they they avoid. And uh, and here's the question that I want to ask specifically, because I hear this all the time, and I do not have children and I am not a mom, but did people in your community blame your son's illness on you? Because you always hear that society blames moms for mental illness.
2: Yeah. Well, for us, it's a little bit different because Timothy is also adopted. So, a lot of what we got was, and no joke, people would say, Well, this is obviously because he's a product known from his birth parents. Why don't you just return him? Wait, what? Yeah, he's not a toaster. It's not like, you know, gee, this toaster is not toasting right anymore. I'm going to take it back to the manufacturer. People would literally say to us because he was adopted, obviously, it's not, you know, our fault. It's something weirdly genetic with his birth parents or his background and whatever. And maybe we should just go and, you know, not get a kid who was so complicated.
0: Wow. Uh,
2: which just stunned me. Yeah, it totally stunned me. But I'll tell you what really did happen there was neighbors and people at school and stuff, what they wanted was their kids to stay away from Tim because they were worried that he was he was dangerous or erratic. And you know that's the thing. Whenever you hear about schizophrenia, your mind always goes to insert horror movie here.
1: Right.
2: So, you know, you get little kids who are like, oh, my God, he's got this terrible disease or it's a split personality thing, which half the world still thinks that's what it is. You know, we need to keep our kid away from him. And it's hard for
1: children anyway, because anything that makes a child different, yep. bullying is a real thing and and clicks form. And But now your son is in a position where he he could definitely use support and use friends and use understanding. But of course, he's not getting it because kids are being children. But then there's another layer. Parents are influencing their children's behavior. And I just, I struggle with that idea so much that a parent would tell their children, don't play with another child because they're sick.
2: That's just so scary. That's the problem though. They don't see him as sick, what they see it as. And this is why a lot of parents get blamed. They see it as a personality defect, right? Or a behavioral defect. It's like a kid, he's not spoiled. He's got an illness. (laughs) But, you know, and I don't know if you know this, but when NAMI was originally founded, it was founded by a group of parents Moms in particular, who were tired of being blamed for their children's schizophrenia. Yep. nommy mommies. Yep. So that's how it got started. And, you know, it would be great to say that there had been progress since they started this in the early 70s, but there has been very minimal progress. And it's not just the public. The worst thing we fight against as well is a lot of clinicians don't understand it, especially in children, because there's such a behavioral component. You know, it's so hard to diagnose a child because when my child throws a temper tantrum, is it because... He's trying not to listen to the voices in his head, or is it because he's frustrated, or is it because he's a kid? How did you as a
1: mom decide? When the tantrum occurred, how did you personally make that determination?
2: Um, It was difficult to tell. And because it was difficult to tell, we started treating them all the same. The one thing with Tim it was easy to figure out was if he would escalate quickly, it probably was because of his illness. If he was just mad because you know we weren't having SpaghettiOs for dinner, that was something easily diffused, and he wouldn't escalate. It would be easy to chalk him down. So I would start talking to him slowly, trying to understand what was going on in his head. And if it kept on escalating, and I knew that we had a real problem, we had to deal with. But initially, you don't, especially with the kids. You have to start treating them all the same, and that's the hard part. Especially, you know, imagine it happens in the middle of the grocery store. How do you explain this to people while you're? sitting there saying, okay, let's sit down and calm and talk about what's going on. And everyone's looking at you like you're crazy.
1: Right. So to take a step back, you said that you could tell something was wrong as early as four, but that he wasn't diagnosed until he was you know, nine. Is that correct?
2: Well, his first diagnosis was at the age of four. And at that point, they didn't know whether it was an autism spectrum disorder or an emotional disorder. So he basically had this diagnosis called PDD-NOS, which is Pervasive Developmental Disorder Not Otherwise Specified. And from there, he transitioned through several. So then it went to, okay, it's definitely not autism, it's emotional. So now it's emotional disorder, not otherwise specified. And then maybe it's bipolar disorder, or maybe it's bipolar disorder one, or maybe it's two, or maybe it's but bi- with psychosis and blah, 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 just kind of kept going. You know, when they finally said it was a schizophrenia, it was a doctor who had been consulting with his therapist, and the therapist had been reticent to tell us that she was positive it was schizophrenia, and he just basically blurted it out.
1: Oh, wow. What were the specific, what were you witnessing? What was your son doing?
2: He had a couple different things that were pretty routine. So he had some, which now we know are delusions. Of course, now we use a clinical term, we call them delusions, but he had some weird idiosyncrasies, like he couldn't put water on his face because something horrible was going to happen. His face, I don't know, was going to melt him or whatever, but he could never put water on his face. He would have conversations with nobody. And I'm talking long, complex conversations with people. Like when I'm driving and he's sitting behind me and the hair in the back of my neck would stand up because he's having a huge hairy conversation with no one who's there. He had very little outward emotion. He wasn't very happy. He was never very sad. He was just kind of flat, right? So now we know clinically they call that flat affect. And when he had anxiety about all of this going on, he had some incredible rage, my husband and I were actually trained when he was eight years old on how to do a therapeutic hold because he was so strong. Well, here's an example. At the age of eight, he took one of those kid desks you know, with the chair attached to it and the lid lifts up, picked it up over his head and threw it at a teacher. Oh, wow. So he was pretty strong. So we actually were trained by clinicians on how to do a therapeutic hold because if we didn't, he could literally hurt himself or one of us. The rage was the hardest part to deal with.
1: So now you're, you're faced with all of this. You've got the doctors. You're, you're doing all the right things. You're advocating for your son. We could probably talk for hours upon hours how difficult it is to find the right care, the right treatment, the right clinicians. But m- moving all of that aside, let's talk about medication. Mm. Did you choose to medicate your child? Because it's debated a lot.
2: It is. So initially, we didn't want to medicate our child because the last thing you want to do is, and it's the prevailing thought out there, right? It's like, God, I want to put this poison into my kid. But it got to the point where after several hospitalizations, I mean, he had 16 hospitalizations between ages of 11 and 14. So you get through the first three or four hospitalizations, and you finally realize that you can't do this just with behavioral intervention alone. You know, we didn't want to put the poison into him. So we started very slowly and we wanted to start with, does he need a mood stabilizer? Does he need an antipsychotic? And start working with the doctors to try and create whatever the cocktail is that's right. But every time you put these pills into your kid, a little part of you dies inside because you're thinking, and I hear this a lot from other parents, the number one thing they say is when they have to give their kid meds or put their kid in the hospital is that they've failed as a parent. It's self-stigma. And that's the hardest part. And it's a cliche, and we all say it's like, if your kid had diabetes, you wouldn't feel bad giving him insulin. But it's really true. My kid has a brain disorder. Not a brat, not a behavioral issue. He has an illness in his brain. And if I can give him medication that helps that illness in his brain, let him live the life most fulfilling as possible, then that's what we decided we had to do. I think the hardest part for parents with kids, though, is Unlike adults, kids change a lot. They grow. And as he would grow and get older, we would feel okay. We put him on meds and he's doing stable. And then six months later, he'd have a growth spurt and everything's out the window. So we'd start the whole process over again. And so every time he would go into meds, I would change a med or something. We'd all brace ourselves because we didn't know what was coming. Most parents don't want to medicate their kids. Kids are getting stigmatized for taking meds they really need.
1: Again, I've never been a parent, but I can talk about my personal experience when they were like, hey, you have to take meds in order to be human. I'm like, you know, I'm 25 years old. I'm a grown ass man. I don't need this. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, I was very much in the I'm not sick. My mom is good. So therefore, I can't be mentally ill. Plus, I have a personality and a job. So, you know, sickness is for other people and other families and other problems. The the medication was a you know, pardon the pun, a tough pill to swallow. And that was in me. I'm making the
2: decision for me. Can I ask you a question about that though? Yeah. Is that because you saw the medication as because of your personal failing? Because I think it's so ingrained in our society that mental illness is because we're weak or we're spoiled or not parented well, or we've got a personality defect that even to ourselves, when you're telling me, I have to take a pill so I can act and feel normal, we feel like failures. Yes.
1: And it's a little deeper than that. One, it was a reminder. Th- this is the suckiest part about being on medication. You know, picture 25-year-old Gabe. I- I'm, I'm still that age where I think that I'm invincible. <laughs> and of course, I have bipolar disorder. So I go through mania, which tells me that I am, in fact, not only invincible, but God, mm-hmm. uh, because that that's what yep. mania is like. And Every morning and every night, I have to take a handful of reminders that I'm weak. That is 100% true. That is a demarcation twice a day that I am different from my peers. Now I'll add on all to that that my peers, you know, they're good people. I have no negative stories of my friends being mean to me on purpose. (coughs) They would all make little jokes. Oh, there's Gabe with his granny pill minder. Oh, Gabe's got to go to the pharmacy with all the grannies. They thought they were being friendly and ribbing me, but it, it hurt. Yeah. And it, it hurt in a way that I couldn't explain. I couldn't put my finger on. We'll be back after this message from our sponsor.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com.
1: we're back with Chris Hickey, founder of the non dot like Club.
2: I've said to people before, and people look at me like I'm whacked when I say this, but I do feel like we're really lucky that Tim was diagnosed so young. Because when Tim was 11, he didn't get a choice whether he took his meds or not. He didn't get a choice if he went to his doctor or not. He didn't get a choice if he went to therapy or not. He did it because he was 11 and I'm the parent. So by the time he was 18 or 19... It was such a routine for him, he didn't think about it.
1: And this is an incredible point to bring up because you're absolutely right. I was 25 years old when I was diagnosed and I had a choice.
2: Mm -hmm. You have a parent who also has a mental illness or you have a parent who doesn't understand it and is still trapped in that kind of stigma blame cycle. The number one reason kids who die by suicide, I mean, children who die by suicide die is because they weren't in treatment. And the reason they weren't in treatment is because Their families didn't want to believe there was something wrong with them. And why do you think that is? So I just think that when parents think a kid is depressed, I don't think they understand. Suicide kills more kids than anything in the world except car accidents. I mean, it kills more kids than cancer. Every birth defect combined, suicide. Right. That depression, there's little D depression, like, you know, oh, my friends didn't call me, I'm so depressed. And then there's big D depression, which is clinical. And with all the stresses that kids are under now about, you know, achieving and getting into good schools and scholarships and student loans cost so much and what am I going to do that when a kid shows something that actually looks like clinical depression, they don't want to believe it. Because if they believe it, then that whole belief about what your child's life was going to be is shattered. You know, it's something a lot of us parents have to go through when you have a kid with a mental illness. You actually go through a mourning period when you actually accept the fact that your child has a mental illness, that what I expected my kid to grow up to be and have for his own life is gone. When Tim was little, he was a gorgeous child, he loved to sing with the radio, everything. He talked about him wanting to be a pilot, all kinds of stuff. You know? And when they told us he had schizophrenia and it really digested it, it's just you could almost hear the glass shatter. And you go through an actual mourning period where you're mourning someone who's still alive and you end up doing it more than once as you go through this whole cycle. And I think a lot of it is because these parents don't want to have to think about what happens if.
1: Because it's scary and they don't have anybody to talk to. Yeah. Which is what you learned early on. You couldn't just reach out to the other moms and dads and say, hey, I'm toilet training and it's a nightmare. These are the things that parents do. These are the things that people do. We we reach out to like-minded people to share stories and get advice, but you didn't have anybody to reach out to. And that was why you started blogging, and that's why you build a community, and that's why you launched parentslikeus.club, which I didn't even know .club was a domain address.
2: It is. Isn't that cool? Yeah. When you know, when I started the blog and other parents were sharing their stories, and I started sharing them on my blog as well, one of the moms there said, this is like this club. All these parents like us were like this big club. And I'm like, bing, there we go. This is what we are. We're this sad little club. So we kind of formalized the name, and I had a section of my website just for the Parents Like Us Club, where people could share their own stories anonymously or not anonymously. It was totally up to them. And then over the years, a friend wanted to start a support group on Facebook, so I helped her. We have a support group, a closed support group on Facebook that has not over almost 10,000 parents in it with all different kinds of brain disorders, not just mental illness, but kids with autism and other things as well. We wanted to formalize it and help people even more. You know, navigating. Medical stuff and the job stuff when you're an adult is one thing. Now you've got a kid, you've got to navigate school and you've got to navigate doctors and you've got to navigate a lot of times the criminal justice system. And you, how do you navigate these things? And how can we help parents that don't know where to start? So form the 501c3 charity Parents Like Us Club, and we're doing three things. We're giving a platform for parents to be able to share stories however they want to share it. They can do video, they can give us a blog post, they can do an audio, be anonymous, not be anonymous, whatever. Because we know, and you know, as we share our stories, it's important for the public, other parents, and especially for us clinicians to hear these stories and understand what these families are living through. The second one is to give find resources for parents. Because the reason I started my blog was I had to do research from scratch. And I didn't want anyone else to have to do research from scratch when you're dealing with this. So how can we get all the resources out there so they're available and they're indexed? And you can find them when you Google it, you can find us. And we can get different clinicians and and people to actually go into a directory and, and tell us they actually specialize in helping families with kids. And the third thing is we're going to be giving micro grants to families that need them to have professional advocacy work with them locally when they go to an IEP meeting at school or they're going to see a new psychiatrist for the first time or they have to go down and sit down with a lawyer and talk about the juvenile justice system because it helps to have a neutral third party there who's really an expert to take that emotion out of it and really understand, A, what your rights are and your child's rights are, and B, what's the best course of action for your kid and what you want to get out of them. So those are the three things we're trying to accomplish, but we're brand new this year, so we're just getting off the
1: ground. I think it's absolutely incredible. You know, when I was diagnosed, again, I was 25 years old, and my parents and my grandparents reached out to meet other families, other family members who had... You know, family members who had mental illness, who had, an, in my case, bipolar disorder. And and again, I, I wasn't a child. You're absolutely right. It's, mm-hmm. you know, my, my parents were scared. My grandparents were scared. My family was scared. And they reached out to get that help. And I, I'm so thankful that they were able to find it. They're in a big city. And there was support groups for this. The thing that I like about your organization is it's on the internet. My my parents aren't shy. My grandparents weren't shy. <laughs> they they started calling emergency rooms and therapists. and They're like, where's a group we're willing to get in our car and drive? But I talk to so many people that are like, oh, we're not going to go to that support group meeting. We're, we're not going to walk in there. Somebody might see us yep. or they're in a small town. I don't want to say that is your support group anonymous or is your club anonymous, but there, there is a certain layer of, of anonymity to it because it's online. Or can you sort of talk about that a little bit?
2: There is. And, you know, obviously there's always the option to be anonymous when you're online. I think what a lot of parents do is, you know, you think about, and again, it all kind of comes back to that stigma we're all ingrained with. The worst part, I think, for kids, too, is a lot of clinicians fall into the stigma category. So it's like the reason that Tim's therapist didn't want to tell us that Tim had schizophrenia is because they didn't want to put it in the chart. You know, it's on their permanent record kind of thing. Whereas I'm like, you know, like I care. But a lot of parents are worried about that. They're like, you know, I don't want to hurt my kids' chances to get into college. Maybe or get a job one day. So I don't want to put their name on the Internet and associate it with a mental illness. That's fine. You don't have to. But the nice thing about it being online is when you talk about kids with serious mental illness, so when we talk about serious, we classify that as schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, and severe clinical depression. So those are the diseases for kids that become fatal, frankly, as far as mental illness goes. If you take a look at the pool of people in the United States, just because that's the one I know best, you're talking about schizophrenia, 100 kids a year get diagnosed, small pool. Bipolar disorder, one or two other type for kids becoming less common because now there's other DSM five things for it, but you get about two to three thousand kids a year get diagnosed with that. Severe depression, much more, ten to fifteen thousand kids a year get diagnosed with severe depression. And that's every year. So you're talking, I don't know, twenty thousand people that need to find each other in the 350 million people in America. I don't have a choice but to go to the internet. I mean, if I was back in the days, you know, when the NAMI moms were all starting to get together, I would have been screwed. My son, we lived in Chicago, not a small town, when my son was diagnosed. And his psychiatrist, who was the head of child psychiatry for one of the largest mental health groups in Chicago, said Tim was the most severe case he'd ever seen. And he was 65 years old. And all I could think of was, first, my thought was, oh, great, my kids like set some sort of record for being whacked. But then the other thing I thought was, how few and far between is it that my kid's the only one, this guy in the second largest city in the country has ever seen?
1: And how lucky are you? You know, that's the thing that goes through my mind. How lucky are you that you live in Chicago? Could you imagine if you lived in rural Ohio or yeah. or I just any place rural?
2: Or where we live now, yeah. <laughs> Now we live in rural Wisconsin, yeah.
1: Yeah, is there? And I don't mean this in, in any insult to anybody that lives in rural America, but there's not gigantic hospitals in rural
2: areas. There's just not enough people. No, so now I live in very Northeastern Wisconsin. Very. I mean, my town is 300 people in it. So if we had lived here when he was 11 and he was, we had to figure out what's going on with him that age, I would have had to go to Madison, Wisconsin, which is four and a half hours away to even get come close to finding a clinician. And then when I got to Madison... The average wait in Madison right now for a first appointment with a child psychiatrist is seventeen weeks.
1: Seventeen weeks, and we're hearing that all of the time. This isn't new news to anybody who's done even the most basic mental health advocacy. Nope. That the wait times to see professionals are—they're so long. They're—they're they're insane. I, <laughs> they're insane.
2: You're terrible. You know, a child psychiatrist are even rarer than right. You know, than psychiatrists. So because it takes takes more schooling, right? If I go to school and go to medical school and become a doctor and then I go to, you know, my specialty and I become a psychiatrist to become a child psychiatrist, I have to invest even more time. And it's not like they're going to make any more money being a child psychiatrist. So there's really no incentive for them to do that. So there's the shortage.
1: I am so glad that you were in a a place where you could advocate for Tim. How is he doing now? You know, we've heard a lot about his childhood. I, I know that he's almost 25 years old now. What is Tim's adult life
2: now? Um, It's good. So we did move to rural Wisconsin. Uh, We moved back to the town my husband grew up in actually. And the number one reason we moved here is because this is a much better environment for Tim than Chicago. There's too much stimulus in Chicago. There's too many ways to get in trouble in Chicago. And he's very anonymous in Chicago. Here in this town, Tim is able to live in his own apartment because he only lives a mile away. So we can help him when he needs help. He has a small part-time job with a family friend who has resort cottages. So he's got some sheltered work where if he's having a bad day and he can't show up, it's no big deal. He can come to work every day and if he misses a day, no problem. He has friends here. We live right on Lake Michigan. He goes swimming in the lake in the summertime and he has his own dog now and he has his bike and he rides all over town and everybody knows him. He really is a happy person and he's very, very stable. And a lot of the reason he's stable is because he has an environment that supports him. Because we're in a small town where my husband grew up, we're not anonymous here. It's like having 200 extra hands to help watch him. A couple weeks ago, you probably know he messed up his meds a little bit you know, but in the emergency room. The paramedics all showed up when he had a problem with it because he lives across the street from the fire department and did know him personally. When he got to the emergency room, he knows the nurse there because she's a neighbor. And you know, when he is having an off day, I'll get a phone call from one of his neighbors who's you know, have you seen talk to Tim today? He seems a little off. So we've created this environment for him where he's very insulated and I know that not only now at twenty five, but when he's fifty five and I'm no longer around, he's still gonna be safe and happy here. Chris, this
1: has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for starting the nonprofit and I don't know if Tim has ever thanked you, but as somebody who lives with mental illness, you know, m- moms like you, parents like you, family members like you, they make such a big difference it made a big difference in my recovery and I I know it made a big difference in Tim's as well. So, so thank you so much for everything that you do.
2: Thank you. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Hey, it was my pleasure. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Remember you can get one week of free convenient, affordable private online counseling anytime, anywhere, just by visiting betterhelp.com slash psych central. We will see everybody next week.
0: You've been listening to the psych central podcast. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. To learn more about our host, Gabe Howard, please visit his website at gabehoward.com. Psychcentral.com is the internet's oldest and largest independent mental health website run by mental health professionals. Overseen by Dr. John Grohall, psychcentral.com offers trusted resources and quizzes to help answer your questions about mental health, personality, psychotherapy, and more please visit us today at psychcentral.com. If you have feedback about the show, please email show at psychcentral.com. Thank you for listening and please share widely.